The Wings Over New Zealand show is brought to you in association with the Wings Over New Zealand Aviation Forum, New Zealand's number one aviation discussion forum online. There you'll find discussion on all aspects of New Zealand aviation, from history to current affairs and thousands of photos covering the Royal New Zealand Air Force, airlines, general aviation, warbird restorations, air show news, sport aviation, home building, gliding, aviation media and much, much more. You'll be in good company with other aviation enthusiasts, including pilots, engineers, warbird owners and restorers, historians and authors, modelers, aviation photographers and many others. Sign up to the Wings Over New Zealand community now. It's free and easy. Just Google Wings Over New Zealand and you'll find the forum. Hi, it's Matt Jolly from warbirdradio.com. Listen, I am thrilled to have Dave Homewood as part of our broadcast family and bring your stories, the stories of the RNZAF, heard right here on Wings Over New Zealand to our global audience. Thanks for listening and hope to hear from you sometime at warbirdradio.com. This is Extended, the ETOPS Aviation Podcast. Here's Peter Johnson. We're in front of the Merlin. Can you tell us a little bit about the aircraft? What aircraft did you fly before? Uh, Sohoi 22. Right, okay. That's quite an interesting aircraft. Mm-hmm. What was that like to fly? Faster. Yeah. <laughs> Gareth Stringer. Make no bones about it. This is still a very capable aircraft. The cockpit's very cramped. You've got leg restraints on. You're sat on a seat that's got explosives in it. Tim Robinson. Also the A400M, got to go inside and uh, have a poke around with. Just taking me on the trip of a lifetime in a F-18F Super Hornet. Aviation-extended.co.uk And remember, there's no E at the beginning of Extended. Extended! The Wings Over New Zealand show would like to acknowledge the great support it's had from Fly DC3. You can fly back in time with Fly DC3 from Ardmore Airport, charter the DC3 Dakota and fly into the past. It's an experience you'll never forget. Fly DC3. Go to www.flydc3.co.nz. Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood. Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show. I'm your host, Dave Homewood. Air New Zealand is New Zealand's national airline. It is also one of the best airlines in the world. I recently had the pleasure to sit down with Christine Odie, who's one of Air New Zealand's Airbus captains. Here's the interview. I'll just get you to say your full name. Yeah, Christine Odie. And your uh, place of birth? In Whangarei, New Zealand. Okay. And um, did you grow up there? I did, yeah. I spent my entire formative years in Wongarei. Yep. And so in, in that case, where did you first get uh, interested in aviation? Or was it there when you were growing up? It was. So I grew up on a, a sheep and beef farm uh, in uh, Whangarei Heads, which is almost due east of uh, Whangarei Airport. And when I was about seven, I think, uh, mum and dad bought some more land, which was uh, unbroken in land, uh, and it was a next-door neighbour's property. It had really large gorse all over it. Uh, so it was still back in the days of 245T, it was legal, that's how you got rid of gorse in those days, so they hired a helicopter uh, and the pilot uh, was a gentleman called Max Donnelly, who was my instant hero uh, at age 8 when he came to, to spray the gorse and uh, pestered my dad long enough, it's like dad, 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 I want to go for a ride in a helicopter, dad, I want to go for a ride in a helicopter. 
and eventually he relented, asked the pilot and uh, Max, uh, who happened to be really rather fond of small kids, said yes, absolutely, and took me for a ride in the helicopter. Brilliant. And how did that feel? Oh, I can remember, <laughs> we had a dam out the back of the farm, um, you know, for stock water, and they, that's where they were spraying from, because of course they had a, a water source to mix with a spray, so um, he and it had a road across it, that's where they were taking off and landing from, so you took off, you know, up tilt forward straight over the water and of course the helicopter you can see through the bottom and I, I still have this vivid memory of being an eight-year-old gripping the edge of the seat being so terrified and excited all at the same time as we took off and I was just like determined not to be too scared but at the same time I was you know quite terrified at that moment but by the time I got back I was sort of flying without the helicopter so yeah um okay so where did you go from there with aviation did, did you decide there and then you wanted to be a pilot I decided there and then it was my it was my fantasy to be a pilot absolutely yep I was, I was hooked but in terms of reality reality took a really long time after that so I had another ride in the helicopter a year or so later with Max and I also went up in the uh, top dressing aircraft of Fletcher well, the gentleman called Mark Delaney on a couple of occasions first one when I was 14 and that was very very cool as well but um, I got to the end of high school. I knew I wanted to fly, but I also knew it was completely impossible at that point because I finished high school in tick, 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 91. <laughs> it was my last year of high school, but of course, as anybody who's been around for a wee while knows, the late 80s were not particularly flash years for the farming community in New Zealand with the fourth Labour government. So, um, you know, our family had bought that new land in the in the very early 80s at that point when they had uh, like development loans available to farmers to break a new land which was about sort of three percent I think um, uh, and from 1984 onwards that went to around the 20% mark so um, I still don't know actually how mum and dad managed to not go bankrupt but they didn't um, so hence any thought of doing any sort of expensive training out of high school was completely and utterly off, off the off the possibility. So at the end of high school I didn't really know exactly what else I was going to do but by default kind of ended up at university. It was the first year of the student loan scheme in 1992. So I uh, went and did that and I did a um, my strengths at school and I know this makes no sense being a pilot but my strengths at school were um, the arts, I didn't do any sciences, I did um, a degree in Japanese language and history. Those were the two things that I um, found the easiest and, and liked. So I finished, I did my degree uh, and had finished that when I was 20 so, uh, and then needed to find a job so I spent uh, six months doing, uh, I had been had a part-time job at Northern Polytech just doing clerical stuff uh, in my well at the end of my first year of university and I did that again at the end of my last year of university and I also spent that six month period doing part-time translation for the Ministry of Forestry. My Jap high school Japanese teacher, um, who I was still in touch with, uh, had a friend in the Ministry of Forestry who, um, it sounds weird, but every, every fortnight they got a whole bunch of newspapers in from Japan that talked all about glue lamb and chip and all, all this really exciting, really exciting stuff to do with Pinus radiata and yawn, uh, all, all in Japanese and all in kanji and they needed it translated for a, a little 
two sides of an A4 newsletter called Japan Link that went out to the forestry industry uh, and that was my job, I translated that. It was right at the edge of my language, I, I had, it took me forever in the, in the dictionary, so every weekend, so I worked Monday to Friday at the Polytech and then every second weekend I just spent the entire thing in my dictionary translating the Japanese, which I would then fax in those days, uh, back <laughs> to the guy in Wellington and he'd put out um, Japan Link. So after six months of doing that, I finally um, got a job, uh, a full-time job, and that was in Auckland with TVNZ, um, working for the teletext department, uh, doing what was at that time called subtitles for the deaf and hearing impaired. So if you've got a, a deaf or hearing impaired person in your family, you may know they exist. Um, on page 801, they, they're still on page 801. Uh, so I did that for, in total, I think it was seven and a half years, but I'd only been doing it for 18 months before I sort of was starting to get a little bit cabin fever, sitting at a, at a computer typing all day, and sort of got the calculator out, pen and the paper, and went, um, I wonder if I could afford to learn to fly. So I shot down to Ardmore uh, and spoke to one of the instructors there and found out how much it cost, did some maths and thought, well, if I get a six month saving head start, I could start, I mean in July, I could start sort of in December, this was 96, um, so that's what I did. Um, I started flying on the 17th of December, which is obviously an important day in aviation, not that I actually knew that at that time. 17th of December 1996 was my first flying lesson, and I was lucky enough to have a female instructor. Right, well which uh, flying school was it? Arbor Flying School. Okay. Yeah. Actually, I, the, the decision process there, because I was living in Green Lane at the time, I did a bit of research. I was pretty much equidistant from Ardmore and North Shore. It was, you know, close enough that travel time, it didn't matter. Um, and But I sort of learnt about the two places and decided that I was going to take what I thought was sort of the harder option, because Ardmore was the busiest airfield in the country, and I thought that that would be a good environment to learn in if I was going to do it. So. You mentioned the female instructor. Was that Liz Needham? No, it wasn't. It was um, Natalie Schultz. Okay. Yeah, who is uh, now still still flying for E. Nelson as a captain. He's been for a long time. Yeah. Yeah. So tell me about that process of starting to learn to fly. Well, I, was, I just did it once a week because I, I carefully worked out my budget that I could afford by one hundred and forty dollars for a tomahawk with the instructor. Um, it was it was just fantastic. I mean, I suppose I can't. I still remember going solo. That was um, that was the biggest biggest buzz of the whole process I think and probably for lots of people um, but you, you start off just being really 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 excited and you can't it's the whole pinch yourself moment for a really long time because you can't believe that you're actually the one flying flying the aircraft and then you have you have the triumphs where you can you know do things well and then you always find something that takes a little bit longer to get good at and then you have those doubt moments where should I be doing this or you know or shouldn't I be doing this but basically the enjoyment of it took over from everything else so yeah and how long did it take for you to get uh, up to the solo stage <laughs> um I've got I've got the plaque on the wall next door actually <laughs> it was in March 97 I can't remember the exact date but yeah I do remember being on on final my first solo <laughs> thinking you know you can't bleep this up because it's <laughs> you're the only one in the airplane <laughs> so yeah I do remember that yeah yeah and obviously you went on to PPL, did you carry on um, immediately on to the commercial? Or? Um, well it took me 13 months to get to the PPL stage, so um, 
yeah, that was must have been year January '98. I think I did my PPI flight test. Um, I did start. Well, actually, when I started, I was only going to do my PPL because back then I knew it cost 40000 to do a commercial and there was no way I had $40,000. So my intent when I started was just to do my PPL because that was beyond fantasy that I had, you know, actually just flying an aeroplane. But by the time I finished my PPL, I had realised that I had a serious addiction uh, and I had to work out how to, you know, make it be able to fly for the rest of my life because I realised that... I couldn't afford to fly recreationally the amount that I wanted slash needed to fly to be happy. So I had to work out how to do it for a career. Um, and uh, student loans were available to the tune of $6,000 a year at that point, they just started. So I did a whole lot of thinking in terms of student loan money and all the money I earned from my job and my parents had became resigned to the fact that I was going to fly. <laughs> so um, they very kindly contributed uh, to what I was doing as well so that I could afford to do it on a part-time basis. And I did do my, I've got to try and remember now, I did do my CPL subjects full-time. It was a, I think it was a 10-week course because work was good enough to, you know, be flexible enough to give me that time to do that. Um, but it took about 18 months, I think it was, to do my, get all the way to my commercial flight test on a part-time basis. And again, I remember it was in July that I did my commercial flight test because it's the first time I've really had, you know, proper flu. The day I was supposed to do my flight test, I was absolutely bedridden for a week with a fever and <laughs> just miserable. So um, that, was, that was delayed by about two weeks, I think, before I finally got to do it. Um, so it was a fairly slow, steady process, but I didn't stop. You know, I just kept kept chipping away at it through that whole time period. And, and that's the case for so many pilots. They mm -hmm. come to that where they're budgeting every week to be able to get through that process. And, yep. and, and a lot of people look at pilots and think, oh, they're rich, but they're not. They, they don't start that way. <laughs> no, and you realise you sacrifice a lot to do it because, uh, I mean, if I hadn't been spending all that money on flying, it would have been house deposit. Um, or I would have been going on holiday, or you know, name any one of a hundred other things that I wasn't doing in order to have the money to learn to fly, and, and the debt, of course, that went with it. Yeah, but it becomes an addiction, doesn't it? Absolutely. I mean, and I think because I know my my mum in particular wasn't initially that comfortable with me pursuing the whole flying thing. I think she could see her grandchildren disappearing. But um, <laughs> um, she did realise after I'd been flying for about a year uh, that it was at the core of what made me happy and I was going to be miserable if I didn't. Yeah, so. Yeah. So how did that progress um, to what we are now with New Zealand? Um, again, it was a relatively slow process. So I, after I'd done my commercial, I knew that I wanted to carry on and instruct uh, because, again, it was the only sort of real viable option. And back in 98, um, it was a really busy instructing scene because, of course, student loans were becoming more available in the amount you could borrow. I can't remember when it increased a whole lot. It was a little bit after that. But what I'm trying to say is the, the supply of students was increasing. Everything looked pretty rosy. There were plenty of jobs. Yes, they didn't pay very much, but you could get your hours up. So I decided to do my instructor's rating, and it was probably the biggest gap of flying. I had about three months, I think, when I didn't fly. 
and then started the instructor rating late in 98, 9? No, I did my instructor's rating in 99. I might have got my years, I might have <laughs> forgotten in there somewhere, but it was 99 that I did my instructor's rating. Uh, and I remember that I was, I signed on the dotted line for a part-time instructing role on the 17th of December, uh, 99, which was three years to the day after I started flying. Didn't have an instrument rating because we didn't do it that way back then. Um, you did your CCAT first. And my first day in uniform officially as a CCAT was Boxing Day, uh, 1999. Um, and of course that was very part-time. So what I'd managed to um, negotiate by threatening to resign at TVNZ was uh, part-time work there uh, and part-time work as an instructor. So I, had, I would work um, flying school I'd get there at 7.30 in the morning and stay there till I think it was 2.30 and then I'd drive all the way into the city and I had a change of clothes luckily you know we were back of house nobody saw you so t-shirt and jeans was fine and there was a shower at TVNZ so I'd race through the shower chuck on jeans and a t-shirt and work at TVNZ from 3.30 till 10.30 and I did that four days a week and then the Friday, Saturday, Sunday I was just at Ardmore so I did work seven days a week because the only way that you could get students was to be at the flying school. So when I say I worked seven days a week, I wasn't necessarily hard at work the whole time I was at the flying school, but you had to be there to be available in case a student showed up. Right. And I was also teaching the ground courses, so the PPL, I did. I taught navigation, I taught PPL nav and then CPL nav and eventually IFR nav as well, because that was the only reliable income you could get out of the flying side of things if you didn't have students, okay. you know, flying all the time, yep. which you don't at the beginning. Um, and I did my, I started studying toward my ATPLs as well in the downtime when you're waiting for students. Um, so I had an ATPL not that long after I um, finished my CPL. Actually I'd done the first one before I had my CCAT I think. Uh, and then once I got established in the CCAT role, I started working towards my instrument rating. And I did my instrument rating on the 27th or 28th of November, the anniversary of Erebus which I didn't realise it was the day. The first thing that uh, examiner said when we sat, sat down is he said this is sort of not an auspicious day in aviation, but you know, an important day in aviation. So, um, so I had the instrument rating and then I spent a year um, still doing BFR instructing and getting my 50 hours IFR in a flight plan um, <coughs> that you have to have to, to do your instruct IFR. And the flying school is good with that. They would give us a slightly discounted rate, you know, to help build up your time because it's very expensive when you're doing it in a multi-engine aeroplane. Um, and so it was about a year after I got my instrument rating, I think, that I did my uh, multi-instructors endorsement so then I could do multi-IFR instructing. And at that point I'd been instructing for three years total um, and was pretty exhausted because I'd spent that whole three years working 70 to 80, 80 hours a week and I was, I was really absolutely a write-off. Um, and I realised that I wasn't um, safe enough from a fatigue perspective to actually try and instruct IFR. There was no way I could have that level of concentration. So I gave up my job at TVNZ and went full time with the flying school. Uh, I'd also just got married so I had a husband who had to help look after me at that point. <laughs> uh, and so I spent a year multi-IFR instructing. Basically that was pretty much all I did for that year. Um, so by the time the end of uh, 2000 and 
crikey, it's hard to remember now. 2002, 2003. Must have been the end of 2002, I think. Um, I got a phone call for an Eagle Ear interview. I had about 400 hours multi, or not quite, I think, at that, at that point, and but over 2,000 hours total time, I suppose. Um, and did the interview, and it's probably one of the worst experiences of my aviation career because at that point, so I was uh, 28 ish. No, I wasn't, I was older than that. <laughs> Anyway, I had, in terms of formal job interviews, I'd had the one for the TBNZ job, full stop. <laughs> right? So the whole formal job interview thing was a bit of a mystery to me, and particularly no experience in the aviation environment. And you get there and you realise at that point, because of course Eagle wasn't part one to one, it was part one to five, and there are different rules as to what experience you had to have to get into a part one to one airline. You had to have the air transport time at that point, which I didn't have, so I knew, sorry, uh, I, which I knew I couldn't get into Ian Nelson because of the CAA rules. So basically you go into this interview with your entire career riding on it, because it's, it's your only opportunity and you have to get it right. Um, and I didn't. <laughs> uh, so I was so nervous and um, the interview, I remember the interview process, uh, they had the, the two guys there and one of them was wearing sunglasses inside. And it completely wigged me out and I, it transpired later, apparently the guy had um, conjunctivitis or something. So he had a good reason for wearing it, but it didn't tell me that at the time. And he was just staring at me from behind these sunglasses, and I was already really, really, really nervous. Uh, so, yeah, it didn't go very well at all. Uh, so, so I, I, now, it would be different. I would say, you know, do, sorry, it's making me really uncomfortable with your sunglasses, any chance you could take them off, or, or you know, but I didn't have the confidence to do that back then. So, um, yeah, so that was a major blow when I got the no from Eagle. That was a really, really major blow. And I sort of got to the whole, um, man, I've made a really big mistake with my life. Uh, I have put all of this time and effort and money into this one goal. And I'm obviously not the right person to do it because, you know, I've failed it. And it was really hard, <laughs> really hard. So I sort of moped around, dragged my bottom lip along the ground for about a month. Um, thought about going to air traffic control, you know, all the rest of it. Um, but then discovered that there was an exemption in place to the 100 hours ATO for the part 121. Uh, and so things looked a little bit brighter. I thought, well, I'm not, you know, everything's not over and finished yet. Uh, and to make a long story short, in the uh, early the next year, which must have been, I think, it must have been 2003, um, got a ring from E. Nelson for a, a last minute um, we've had somebody pull out, would you like to come to an interview next week? <laughs> yes, of course I would. Um, I think I think uh, Warren probably had something to do with that, because Warren was always looking at, from the flying school, was always looking out for our best interests, and um, I'm sure that wasn't a coincidence, let's put it that way. Um, so, yeah, extremely excited to do that. I'd done a lot of reflecting on why I'd failed at the Eagle one. I had actually rung Wayne Taylor, really difficult phone call for me. I thought I have to know precisely what I've done wrong uh, and he just said well, you, uh, you were just not confident I said we can't hire somebody who I basically looked scared in the interview because I was 
Um, so I had thought about that for three or four months and realised that, you know, not only is a, was the content of my answers important, it was how I delivered it was equally important, which I had, I, that had, I know that sounds dumb, that, that had not occurred to me in the first Eagle interview at all. So uh, needless to say, the one with E. Nelson went a lot better. <laughs> and I have to say, it made you feel really, really welcome at E. Nelson. There was a big difference between my two interview experiences, because we're going back, you know, in the days when they were completely separate. The Eagle one had been held at a hotel um, by the airport in Auckland. You went up there and it was just in a little sort of meeting room at the hotel. So no, you just had to find your way in. There was nobody to meet you. It was sort of interrogation style, my perception of it. And at Ian Nelson, they flew you down to Nelson. Uh, Helen met you at the airport. Hi, how are you? How's your day going? Do you want a cup of coffee? Come with me. You know, the first thing they do is, oh, look, we've just got to measure you for the uniform. Try this on, try that on, you know, all the rest of it. Chat, 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 chat the whole way. So you'd been with Helen for half an hour, 45 minutes. You'd had a cup of tea, you know, a bit of a sit down and chat before you even got to the interview. Um, and they just made you feel like they wanted you to be there. And that was fantastic. Yeah, and then, yeah, and he sat down and had this interview with um, Mike Ford and Neil Kenny, I think it was, and it was definitely Mike Ford. And it was more of a conversation, it was more of a three way conversation than a sort of I'll ask you a question, you answer it interrogation. Um, so it was, uh, and I acknowledge part of that was my mindset because I, I determined I was going to, you know, try and relax a bit more. Um, but yes, yeah, so that was that was a positive outcome. And then I started with I did the ground course with E. Nelson in February, and started in March, which must have been two thousand four. So I might have got my years one off. Yes, yeah, two thousand four. Okay. Yeah. So that process of uh, converting to the airliner once you started with yep. them. Tell me about that. Actually, it was pretty good because I have to say E. Nelson's training was exceptionally thorough. Like the ground course, um, I think it was a couple of weeks long, and we would do a particular system, and then we'd have a test on it, you know, all the way through. So they made sure that you understood it as you went, and we had the wonderful Bill Hendy. I don't know if you've ever run across him, but he Good was name, oh, he was fabulous, um, and he was because he loved telling stories. So he'd tell you stories about when this had broken and that had happened and, and whatever, and also. Um, I remember going into the hangar uh, there at E. Nelson, so I, whole class, you know, shuffles in, and uh, the engineer giving us one of the um, uh, compressor discs, you know, sort of, this is how big it is, hold on to it, you know, have a look, and then we went out in the hangar and they had the cows off the engine with some stairs up, and we all stood up there and they moved some bits, and we all stuck our head in and had a look, and it was really, really good because it helped you see what you'd been learning about on paper and the whole make you welcome, feel welcome thing again. So that was really thorough and then we went of course to Melbourne for the sim, as I didn't have the sim in New Zealand, and uh, my sim partner um, was a guy who'd been an instructor at Canterbury, which helped because we both had the same background, uh, which was really, really good and we sort of helped each other, you know, because you understand where you're coming from and you both found the same things difficult. Um, so it, actually the typewriting, I mean it was quite stressful, we were certainly concentrating pretty hard, your whole life stops for two weeks while you're at the airport in Melbourne. Um, but it was, it was pretty good because having been a 
multi-IF instructor, um, I was really familiar with the procedures and you just have to learn to handle the new aeroplane. So yeah, it wasn't too bad. I do distinctly remember my very first day in the SAR because I flew with Lou Gollop, um, who um, was wonderful. And my first sector was Nelson Wellington. So, and I remember <laughs> starting out thinking, all these people in the back have no idea. I've never flown a SAR before and I've never flown to Wellington before. <laughs> um, so, but yeah, no, no dramas. Um, it was really enjoyable. Did you actually have to move down to Nelson for the job or did you stay based in Auckland? Uh, just for the training period we were accommodated in Nelson um, and I can't really remember how long that took but I was I got based in Auckland um, which was a happy accident actually because you know, I'd only been married about a year uh, and we sort of already we'd accepted that the likelihood I was going to end up posted somewhere else but my husband's a secondary school teacher and he said oh, I can find a physics teaching job you know without too much problem. Um, but luckily, we didn't have to do that. Yeah. At that stage, uh, Air Nelson was part of Air New Zealand, wasn't it? It was under the structure yes. of Air New Zealand. Yes, yes, yeah. So, that would, that's obviously your, your first sort of introduction to Air New Zealand, the whole culture of the, the company and all that. And uh, I mean, it's, it's such an iconic company in New Zealand. I, mm. I wondered, how did that feel to be in such a, a well-known, I mean, everybody in New Zealand knows about Air New Zealand. And, mm working for a company like that? Oh, it was really special. Really, really special. Um, again, it's one of those pinch yourself moments uh, when you realise, you sort of think back to the eight-year-old girl on the farm whose fantasy it was to be flying flying an aeroplane. I mean, it, 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 the fantasy was no bigger than just to fly a plane. And here I was driving an aeroplane with a corridor on the tail. Yeah, you feel really, you feel really special. Absolutely, no question about it. And at that point, there was only not very many girls. Uh, I started on uh, on the same course as uh, Amanda Clifford. She is now. Um, and actually, this is a funny, funny side comment. Um, when we were doing our ground training, we were accommodated in various motels around Tahunanui in Nelson. And all the boys had one room to themselves, but me and Amanda had to share a room. I still don't know why they did that. And both Amanda and I were just like, not going to say anything. <laughs> so, as it turned out, we got on just fine, which was great. Um, but it was there. So it was Amanda and myself and um, my uh, the woman who did my instrument rating, Kate, was Eddie Nelson as well. And there was one other girl who was off on long-term sick, and I think, and of course Lou, who had been around for a long time, and that was about it. Um, so I was quite conscious of the fact of being a girl because you still stood out a lot. So you were talking about the um, being a girl in the airline, mm. and well, obviously girl pilot in the airline, yeah. which it was still a reasonable novelty at that time. Yeah, certainly. So now there's about sort of 14, 15 percent female in in Elson. At I'm not sure what the percent was, but about you know about five out of the entire uh, entire airline, and. I don't know how much of that is was self-imposed <laughs> feeling of standing out or how much other people uh, really noticed, but you still uh, feel very, um, like if you make a mistake, like if you don't do a great landing, uh, you always feel like you've you've uh, sort of committed a sin on, on behalf of womankind, not just you yourself have stuffed up on that particular day, um, because you know there's going to be somebody down the back that goes, 
Oh yeah, a woman pilot. Whereas if a man did a bad landing, which let's be honest happens more often because there's more of them, um, nobody's going to go, that happened because it's a bloke flying the aeroplane. I mean, those, those biases still exist most unquestionably. As you uh, spend more time flying and gather more experience and, and you mm -hmm. get more relaxed into the job mm -hmm. because it's, you've been there a while, does that feeling lessen? Or down the track two years into it or three years into it, you make a mistake, do you still feel just as bad? Or? Um, uh, not as much. You still, you still, you still, I still, I'm still con conscious that um, if you make a mistake that you know, I know that there will be people who attribute that to the fact that I'm female. Because I know it still exists, because on occasion you still hear the old comment. Um, I do remember after I'd been on the 7-3 a wee while, walking through the terminal in uniform, you know, and hearing this father say to his son, quite obvious, I was sitting next to the next to each other seat, as I walk past, I will be hoping you don't have a female flying the aeroplane. Wow. I had to bite my tongue really hard not to turn around and say something that could have cost me my job. <laughs> I just kept walking. <laughs> so I know I know it's still out there. I just, I'm, <laughs> you know, I just find it hard to fathom that people are still like that. Well, even why were they like it in the first place? Because we've had, yeah. we've had, uh, you know, females flying since the 1930s when yes. men started flying recreationally and. Yep. It just doesn't make any sense that there's any differentiation as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. Well, and the majority of people are probably of the same mind, um, from my experience, but you know that there are always a minority out there who still hold those views. So. It makes you wonder why they hold that view. They, they must have some sort of inferiority complex. Or I, th I think it's probably lack of exposure to women doing those sorts of things. Because, I, th I mean, I come from an agricultural background where it doesn't matter who you are, if the job needs doing, you just do it. It doesn't matter if you're a bloke, a woman. A, a, I mean, it makes no difference. I mean, how, ma how many um, farming women out there drive the tractor, drive the hay truck, drive the, you name it, it needs to be driven, you just do it. Yeah. You know, yeah. so those people in those environments just accept that women will be out there doing whatever needs to be done. Whereas I guess people from other backgrounds, um, it's not as normalised, I suppose. Mm. I, I, I think it could be that having a female pilot might be slightly safer, wouldn't it? Because you supposedly can multitask better than us. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I don't know about the multitasking thing. No, I think that's that's uh, propaganda, isn't it? <laughs> Um, actually, if, if I have heard um, that uh, statistics bear out the uh, bear out the truth that women are generally better decision makers or more conservative decision makers than men. Not so rash in the decision sort of thing. Absolutely, we're not out there to prove uh, any sort of gung ho. Um, which I'm not saying all men are either, but statistically, uh, women are less likely to make those sort of gung ho type decisions. Right. Yeah. Um, so at what point did you get involved with the Air Women's Association? Um, I'm not, I've been a member, a, a, um, just a financial member on a couple of occasions, but I've never actually had anything to do with them on a regular basis. Right. Um, I just met nearly through um, flying with, I did a little bit of flying in the cub with Bill, who I knew from work. Right, um, So that's how I bumped into you, really. Okay. Yeah. Um, so you don't sort of think it's important to have those sort of almost segregated groups that support each other? Do you, or um, I haven't been involved in them only because I don't 
do anything anymore in, in a GA environment. I think it's really important, whatever form it takes, to have links between industry and people who are wanting to get in, you know, do commercial aviation. So um, through Air New Zealand I was part of a small team of people who set up the flight training organisation um, partnership is not the right word, but association with the four flight training schools that we work with. And one of the, my strong motivators for doing that was to improve the flow of information about the job to uh, student pilots. Because as a student pilot myself, uh, whilst um, you're well supported by the flying school and the people that are there, they're not the people actually doing the job, working for the airline, and you don't know what you don't know. Um, so I wanted a channel by which student pilots had direct access to currently working in New Zealand pilots uh, so that they could get a more realistic picture of what the job actually was. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. With the, with the job uh, flying on the regional airlines, mm -hmm. um, are you away from home a lot or do you normally fly home to your home city at night each, each day? Um, so, if, thinking back to E. Nelson, um, and it's changed a little bit now, I think, but you're mostly, mostly you're home. We had some overnights, but they were only ever a single overnight away from home. Um, but, so I did short haul jet for eight and a half years on the 737 and now A320. Pardon me. On the 73, we would occasionally have two nights away from home, but not more than that. Uh, on the A320, we can have uh, a four day trip but that will include some international in it as well. Oh, right, okay. Yeah, so a mixture, a mixture of international and domestic days, but with three nights away. So when you've been doing that for a while and you're going away for four nights away from home, does do you get used to that? Does it, does it become bothersome that you're going away? Or Yeah, you know? um, for, for me, it's actually quite tiring, to be honest, even, even if it looks on paper like you've had a good chunk of rest, because typically, you might change from a really early start to a later finish um, and you're living out of the suitcase. Uh, but And I don't, I imagine it's much more difficult if you've got a family to look after. So I have great uh, um, empathy for, you know, I can't imagine if you're a mum and you've got two kids to look after and you're away from, from home for four days. Not only is that hard on you, it's hard on your other half or whoever's, you know, sort of holding down the home fort. Um, so that would be a challenge. Can't take them with you. <laughs> no, exactly. You can't. You can't take them with you. So, and there's all those things that you know need to be done at home. That you're away in a hotel where it might sound nice that you're relaxing. Um, you, you, you can't necessarily do that if you're worrying about what what needs to be done at home. So. That's a really good point about the lifestyle. Is once you're in once you're in the situation where you've got that family, uh, yeah. it must become. Yeah, there's a lot of detachment there, I guess, and, and for mm. male pilots as well. I mean, yep. You, you meet a lot of male pilots who's sort of, at the end of their career, they look back and think, I missed out so much of uh, what my kids were doing, so. Mm. I think it's, I think it's, uh, it's sort of, there's pluses and minuses, and I mean, there are a lot of families out there that make it work, and make it work really, really well, um, because arguably, pilots actually have more time at home with their kids yep. um, than a Monday to Friday, Monday to Friday, eight to five worker. Uh, it's just not, at, it might not necessarily be on the weekends, yeah. you know, it's just different times of the week and different times of the day. So, I mean, people definitely make it work, there's ample proof of that all over the place, but you've got to be flexible. 
Can you tell me, um, take me through the types of aircraft that you've flown uh, in the airline? You started with the Saab. Mm -hmm. um, tell me what those aircraft were like to fly, and, and you know, technically and, and just, uh, <coughs> yeah, generally. Um, well, I only flew the Saab for 18 months, uh, and it's quite a long time ago now. Uh, but I do remember that um, going from flying a Duchess to a Saab was a relatively straightforward transition. I mean, the Saab was they called it a mini airliner. It really was, because it didn't have our subs at Enelson didn't have an FMS. Um, so we weren't programming a computer to do anything. Uh, and it was a really rather straightforward transition. I remember though that um, it was, you had to be a bit careful on ice. And I can remember on a couple of occasions, because um, you know, we typically cruise 15, 16,000 feet uh, and having to get almost there and just having to give up and go down, get rid of the ice and have another go little bit underpowered. No, actually it wasn't really underpowered, it's just that the contract that we had on the engines meant that we had, uh, limited the uh, inter-turbine temperature. Uh, if you'd actually sort of run them a bit hotter they had a bit more power but of course then the engine life wasn't so flash. Um, and I remember they had on the panel at the front, it, the, the Saab made about 15 different noises and it had this bank of little lights. It was really quite Possibly over complex in terms of all the different things that it did, but it was a great it was a great aeroplane to fly into tra transition into. Um, in terms of the seven three, I started the seven three. It was actually only twenty months for me from flying a beach, uh, not a Duchess to a seven three seven, so it was a bit of a, a, a whirlwind um, and. Um, holding on by my fingertips, really. The 737 is my most favourite aeroplane ever. It's just, it's a magic piece of kit. Because um, it was so tactile. It was massively overpowered for the weights that we flew it at domestically, right? Because we never flew it heavy. Um, and it, pocket rocket, uh, absolutely a pocket rocket. It's just the, I st still used to get a grin on my face when you, just on the client, simple things. On the climb out, you're doing 300 knots and you're going up at 4,000 feet a minute. You know, that's quite, it's just, it's a good feeling. It's a really good feeling. Um, and you knew if you got into trouble on the 7.3, all you had to do was sort of put the thrust levers forward and that was the end of the problem. Really. Um, it was magic. And when you got used to it in terms of flying a visual approach, I mean, the, the airlines changed in terms of its SOPs a lot. So now we have a stable gate regardless of whether you're visual um, on an instrument approach of a thousand feet above airfield level. But <clears throat> when I was flying the 7.3, our stable gate was 500 feet. And the way that the FMS planned its descent profile was from top of descent all the way down, was there's no level segment, that's, that's how it planned it. So the competition, I guess, if you like, the aim, if you knew you were doing a visual approach, was the thrust levers come back at top of descent, and you don't want to have to increase the thrust uh, until as late as possible before the, to be stable at the 500 foot gate. So it was always a really good feeling when you could go hurrying all the way around your visual approach and at about 700 feet just go shove like that and the thrust would come up and you're just stable at 500 feet. <coughs> so yeah, great, great tactile aeroplane, fly a visual approach and you'd be looking out the window, you know, your aim point or whatever. You didn't really need to look inside because it instantly told you if you're going too fast or too slow. As long as you had it trimmed right, obviously, when you started at your speed you wanted to be because you could feel it. It was actually it was really heavy if it was out of trim. You needed to trim it properly. So if you're slowing down or speeding up, you could feel it instantly. 
and you didn't really even need to look at, well never looked at the thrust really because it's either a bit more or a bit less. Check your speed. Um, yeah, it's great aeroplane to fly. And this is the pre-glass cockpit? Uh, no, glass, glass, it's 73300, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. 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 <clears throat> so we had the FMS in it and all the rest of it, but, um, and we had, because we had the traditional, you know, the brown dial airspeed indicator as well as the one on the PFD, um, but I was used to the round dial, strangely, I don't, can't really tell you why, but I just instinctively did, but yeah. So it's, it's a whole lot different to the Airbus. Okay. I mean, I've been flying the Airbus now for three years, and I, I mean, I, I really like the Airbus now, but I will say I didn't like it when I started. <laughs> um, it's a lot more complex than the 7.3, I mean, there's it's just really no comparison. Um, the whole fly-by-wire thing, it makes it easy, possibly too easy because it makes you a bit lazy from a, a hands-on flying perspective because it you know it trims for you. you you don't have to trim it takes it's not tactile like the 7.3 because because it automatically trims you can't rely on your tactile cues to know whether you're speeding up or slowing down for example uh, and also because the thrust levers don't move so you haven't got that's a tactile cue when you're flying the 7.3 you'd be you have your hand on the, on the thrust and you could feel whether it with the auto thrust in, whether it's moving up or down. Um, and of course we always took the thrust out when you're flying visually. Um, and 7.3 was noisy, really I'm a bit deaf as a result, but um, again you can hear if you've got about the right amount of thrust or not, and the A320 you can't, so you've got to rely on the gauges, which means it's all a little bit more, you're just that one more step detached from what the aeroplane's doing. Um, so your scan becomes more important, <coughs> um, but it's very fuel efficient, it's very smooth, uh, it's a really comfortable flight deck, you've got a lot more room than the 7.3, it's a lot quieter, uh, it's, it is really well set out, um, yeah, it's a great airplane to fly. I think from the passenger <coughs> point of view it feels a bit smoother too, doesn't it, it's um, just nicer down the back. There's a lot more room, yeah, there's a lot more room, yeah. yeah. You don't get that real sharp takeoff though. No, well we don't. See on the 7.3 we had to limit our um, takeoff angle to 20 degrees. Um, if you were light you'd actually get it up to about 22 to get it where you want it. But um, in this we always take off at 15. Right. So yeah, it is quite a lot less nose-up attitude. Right. Yep. And you're also doing uh, administrative uh, stuff as well as flying, aren't you? Yeah, so for the past uh, 18, 20 months I've been uh, one of the deputy fleet managers on the A320. Uh, so that means that out of a 28 day roster I spend, well it used to be a bit more than half my time on the ground but now it's around about half my time in the office. Uh, so helping to look after the fleet really. It's a pretty diverse uh, diverse role. We've just changed the way that we organise um, our management structure so we've got about 350 pilots on the A320 and there's five of us in the management team, we have a senior fleet manager and four deputies. So we've got a fifth of the fleet each uh, as our team uh, and so those people know that that one manager is their first point of contact uh, for their questions and problems. Um, and that's something that we haven't actually, we haven't organised our management structure like that previously. So that's new but it's working quite well because you get to know those 75 people uh, better than if you were sort of sporadically interacting with all 350. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Yep. Yeah. 
So h- how many airbuses are in the fleet? I've got 29 uh, operating, wow. yeah. And they fly uh, up and down New Zealand, but also across to, um, is it Fiji? Yeah, so Fiji, Tonga, Rarotonga, Samoa, New Caledonia. What have I missed? <laughs> I think that's all of them. Pacific Islands, yeah, and Australia. Yeah. Yep, okay. And so with the crews, uh, like all of the crews uh, in, in those aircraft, do the Pacific Islands and the New Zealand route, or do you get stuck on a certain route uh, for, for a period and then maybe work up to the Pacific? Or So um, we, all of us do a mixture of domestic and uh, trans-Tasman and Pacific Islands, with the exception of the pilots who are over 65 because of the ICAO restriction. So the over 65 pilots can do domestic trans-Tasman uh, and to ports that don't have uh, as an alternate something that's under American or French jurisdiction or, or op- we can't operate to those ports if they're under the jurisdiction like they can't go to Numea for example. Yeah, um, but it, it's a mixture so anyone roster could have uh, any or all of those things in them. Okay. Yeah. So that, that's a pretty good variety to break up what you're doing. You're not, it's not like a, being a bus driver where you go around in circles the whole time. No, we've got um, yeah, a huge variety of places that we go to. Um, by if you, if you split up what the fleet does by hours or sectors um, or uh, trip days, duty periods, the majority is domestic, uh, just, or well, by sectors obviously it's a lot, lot more domestic. Um, so we're slightly domestic biased fleet. Right. Yeah. Okay. And the the airports that you fly into, um, mm-hmm. which which are your favourites? Oh, I actually really like Adelaide. Everybody probably really likes Adelaide, but that's probably more for the overnight. <laughs> it's just a great place to be on the ground. Um, I mean, I really like. I'm not in the left hand seat. I'm not going to Queenstown yet, but I actually really enjoy on a good day. Queenstown's the most beautiful place in the world um, to fly into and out of. It's stunning. It's also incredibly challenging and, and challenging weather. But yeah. So you have to have a certain amount of experience before you can left hand seat into Queenstown? Yes, so uh, that's right. It depends on uh, what you've done previously uh, as to whether it's, um, and I, I can't remember the exact details and they've just changed for the company as well but yes there is a minimum experience it used to be six months if you've done it before uh, 12 months on type if you would never operated to Queenstown before on another type um, i.e. the 7-3 uh, and it's, it's similar for um, FOs okay. yep. what, what would you uh, recommend to younger people thinking about becoming an airline pilot or any people thinking about because you can sort of start at an older age uh, you don't have to be a teenager when you start no you? So no absolutely um yes so actually pick up on that point first so i didn't start flying till um a couple of months before i turned 23 uh, which is late uh, compared to a lot of people um but for me i think actually that was probably better uh to have just that little bit a little bit more maturity um, before you start and I still think it was good to have done the qualification as well. Um, I think the most important thing if somebody's out there and wondering whether or not they uh, should get involved in commercial aviation is just do your research. Um, find 
find somebody who's already working in the part of aviation that you think you're interested in. I mean, the cliche is hang around and, and sweep hangar floors, isn't it? But uh, take take that whatever way you will. Um, whether it's get in touch with your local, I mean, Aero Club's a great place to start because an Aero Club will, will know where to, how to point you in the right direction. Um, or if your local flight training organisation, uh, you know, if uh, organisations like the New Zealand Air Women's Association, any sort of organisation, get in touch with them and start asking questions um, because it is a really huge commitment. Uh, it's very, very expensive to train, there's no two ways about it. Uh, it will dominate your life if you want to do it for a job and I say that in a good way uh, but it's only good if it resonates with you. Um, you can make yourself miserable trying to force yourself to do something that doesn't quite fit so before you start make sure you know that it fits and the only way to do that is talk to people who are already doing it and all of us are willing to talk about it. So, Are there many people that um, become airline pilots through first working in the airline in another uh, role? Uh, yes, there are. Um, I, couldn't, I couldn't give you a, a number as in sort of what sort of percentage, but yes, certainly there are a number who have been flight attendants uh, at some point, or engineers. We've got a number of uh, pilots who have started out uh, engineering and spent varying amounts of time uh, in the hangar. Uh, actually, while I was at Arbonne Flying School, one of our instructors there was a, actually a full-time engineer with Air New Zealand and uh, then went on to fly for Air Nelson. Uh, and he may even be in Air New Zealand now, I think, in a jet fleet. So, uh, yes, there are lots of opportunities within the airline for people who are learning to fly. And, and does the airline uh, support that sort of move? Or is there some sort of process that they can go through? There's not a formal set-down um, pathway. Uh, but it's always in your to your advantage if you're within the airline and you understand the I guess the culture the brand of the airline what's important to the airline and um, you get known by some of the people who are there. So the company itself mm -hmm. uh, obviously has thousands of people? Yeah about 10,000. And I think it's one of the biggest companies in New Zealand isn't it? Yes. So that um, I guess you don't really get to know that many people in the company, you just stay within your own own little groups? Uh, yes and no, I mean I certainly don't know 10,000 of them, no. uh, but, but <laughs> I mean we've got a thousand and four jet pilots, um, that's, that's just jet pilots, 350 of those are on the A320, so I don't even know all of the A320 pilots, um, I mean I know a good chunk of them, but certainly not all of them. The thing I like about the management role is that we do get to know other parts of the business, I mean mostly closely associated with the operational staff, but uh, you spread your networks a little bit further, simply because you have to. Yep. So as a first officer, as a, uh, as, as a captain, uh, yep. will you each roster get a different um, first officer come through? You're getting different people every time you go for a, a trip? Yeah, that's right, pretty much. So as I'm, I've only been in the left-hand seat since the end of February, uh, so pretty much every time I go to work now, I'm meeting my FO for the first time. And I guess that's quite a unique aspect of the airline role in a, in a large airline is that that's usual, that it's normal that you show up in the morning or the afternoon whenever you sign on for work, you walk into the um, flight planning room and uh, find the other person you're flying the aeroplane with, introduce yourself, and then you go fly a $60 million passenger jet together. And if you think about it, it's it's kind of it's kind of weird, but it also 
um, perfectly illustrates why standard operating procedures are so important because I can do that with 100% confidence. I don't need to know that person before I get in the plane because I know that he's been trained and checked to the same set of standard operating procedures that I use and it just works. And so every time that you've got a, a new person sitting next to you, when you say something to them, they know exactly what you mean, you know exactly what they mean because of the training system. Exactly. Yeah. Yep. That's it. I mean, there can't be many jobs that are like that, like, an, like airlines training like that. Yeah, I, I'm not familiar enough with the engineering profession to know, but because obviously they have different shifts that change over and they pass one job from, from one shift to the next. So I imagine there's some similarities because, you know, they're just sort of changing a crew over doing the same things. But yeah, I, I'm, not, I'm not really aware of other jobs that are as like ours. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that I remember standing out and a, and a lot of people commented on uh, when Sully Sullenberg had put his aircraft down in the, mm -hmm. in the Hudson River and um, when it came out that he'd never met Jeff Styles before that. Yeah. You know, and they worked so perfectly as a team. Yeah. Um, I just thought, gosh, it's incredible. Mm. But uh, yeah, that's how it works. <laughs> yeah. And I think actually when you're talking before about um, what would you say to young people who are thinking about getting into, getting into aviation, I mean, the whole playing by the rules part uh, is integral to safe aviation. So if you're thinking about flying, if you're the sort of person to whom that sounds um, overly restrictive or like something you wouldn't enjoy, then think really hard about joining the profession. We used to speak to groups of kids or, or uh, young people who are interested in flying and one of the things that we would point out, especially to high schoolers, is the importance of keeping a clean record. So like, don't break your provisions of your restricted license for Pete's sake, don't drink and drive, uh, because put the boot on the other foot. If you're hopping in an aeroplane, would you like to hop in an aeroplane with somebody who's a rule breaker? Right. Of course you wouldn't. Um, so, you know, as an airline, we're looking for people who are responsible uh, in, and follow the rules, really. And I guess uh, one of the biggest things in the training process is um, the ability to listen and, and, and comprehend. Yeah, picking it, you've, that's the other key element of what we do is that you're always, it's quite dynamic. Yes, yes we have to, we, uh, it's repetitive in that we, we do the same set of procedures every time we do f go flying, but it's also dynamic on the day in terms of weather, no two days are the same. Uh, but our procedures, processes, technology is constantly evolving, so you have to be willing to learn to use an iPad uh, in place of your paper documents, for example, or learn to use a HUD or w whatever the next piece of new technology is, you will have to adapt to it, learn to use it. Uh, and of course every six months uh, you're being checked in the simulator. Every year you're doing a, you know, a, a route check online, you've got to be current with your emergency procedures, uh, so you, ne you never go very long without being checked uh, for your level of knowledge and your ability to apply it. Do you find there's any difference between um, pilots who have come up through the uh, e either the flying school or aero club system of training uh, mm -hmm. to the pilots who've come out of the Air Force? Um, there probably is a difference, um, but by the time they get to where we are in the jet, you've sort of been, I want to say, evened out. There's certainly a different, there's a different background and a different set of experiences, but when you've all been through the same set of training, um, the end result is 
not noticeably different. Right. I think I would. I think that would be a fair comment. Yeah. Uh, and with uh, with the airline, is there uh, is there a, a social culture as well um, after after hours? You know, outside of flying, is it sort of um, you, you do make lots of friends within the airline and, and you have gatherings and, and all that. You know, like in the air force, there's a real social culture. Yeah, there's certainly. I mean, we certainly have friends, uh, you know, within your workmates. Uh, the, and there are groups of people who get together. Like there's a, there's an enclave of pilots who live in Pukekohe. There's an enclave that live out at Beachlands, and they have um, coffee groups, I, I believe. Um, and it's d different to the individual. But as with any job that works on shifts, uh, that's more of a challenge to get every, everybody in one place at the same time. I think I would say. Uh, but there are. I'm I'm not a boaty, but every year there is an New Zealand yachting regatta as well that the guys who are involved with it it's it's hugely popular right, yeah yeah uh, what are the what are the memories that stand out um, from your flying uh, in terms of just interesting flights that you've had or oh. <laughs> interesting adventures yeah I was, I was really lucky on the 737 actually um, because I had a, a very supportive fleet manager and got quite a few opportunities in terms of the grab-a-seat charters, uh, which we did quite a few of. So, uh, for example, I can't remember how many years ago this was, um, there was a flight, there was a competition for a Cheryl lookalike, Cheryl from Outrageous Fortune. So uh, I got to do the flight where we went down to Christchurch and picked up a whole lot of Cheryls, uh, came back through Wellington, picked up some more Cheryls, and then um, went um, up to Auckland to a function they were going to in the evening and we went uh, to Auckland via Kaitaia because they were doing a whole lot of stuff down the back. So I mean that was that was a laugh for a number of reasons because um, uh, myself and Michael, sort of the captain, had to dress up as Westies. Uh, so I had a blonde wig, sunglasses, leopard skin, you know, black jeans and boots. It was just a complete hoot. He had fake mullet and so we went out and mingled with all the passengers um, at Christchurch before we got there, and they would not believe we were the pilots. They, they completely refused to believe that we were actually flying the plane. Um, and we had fuzzy dice hung up on, on the compass. On the, we had to take it down, we actually got one, but you know, the fuzzy dice. On the and we had Robin Malcolm and some of the other actual actors from Outrageous Fortune, um, a couple of them were on the flight deck. Because it was a charter, we were allowed, you know, allowed to go in and out. So that was that was that was a bit of a laugh. Uh, it was quite a lot of a laugh actually. And I did the America's Next Top Model charter to Queenstown. Um, so the captain I was with was really hoping that um, Tara Banks was going to be there, but she wasn't. So, uh, but we had the guy. Uh, they were filming down the back of the aeroplane the whole way down to Queenstown. Um, and the I can't remember his name now. Oh, Miss J, the, the tall black guy that hosts the show. He was on the flight deck with us for the start of that because he was hiding from the contestants, you know, who supposedly didn't know he was on the aeroplane. Um, so that, you know, that was, it was all very exciting. Um, and the Bluff Worcester Charter went down to um, Bluff. That was actually really good fun. All the passengers had to um, trick out their gumboots. There was competition for the best decorated gumboots. We were dressed up as supposedly fishermen. Uh, but the good part about that was that the aeroplane was on the ground for most of the day in Invercargill. And I did that charter with um, Dave Morgan, the chief pilot, actually, because he's, he's an Invercargill boy. And um, we got all the student pilots from Southern Wings through the 7-3 on the ground. So they all came through and had to sit on the flight deck. And Dave took them 
for a walk around the aeroplane and that was kind of neat because they don't normally have jets coming through Invercargill so it was just an opportunity to say come have a look at a jet, come talk to us you know and they really enjoyed it uh, and just 2015 I think it was yes um, I was able to do the um, flew the All Blacks around the country, country after they won the World Cup so I, I, ha I have shaken Richie McCall's hand <laughs> and stood next to him um, so that was that was pretty neat um, so that, those are the sort of the um, special normal flights I guess you'd say that we've done yeah those are sort of the main ones I think yeah. <laughs> Actually, I'm just getting back to when you're an instructor mm. um, how was that what, what was the feeling for as an instructor when you sent someone solo that must have been pretty neat yeah it was it was because obviously you can't do that to your cat. so yeah, it's a really good feeling to send someone first solo, and um, the first time you do it, you're pretty nervous because not nervous about the student, but you're nervous about whether you've made the right assessment um, because that's a learning process. Um, probably one of the best or most satisfying first solos I ever sent was actually uh, down in Woodburn because for a couple of uh, a couple of years I was instructed at the uh, ATC Power Flying Camp, so it's kind of like the Walsh Memorial, but but not quite. Uh, hot house, you know, they all uh, fly flat out all day to try and get solo on. On the very last day, um, I was able to send my uh, female student Hannah solo, and because she was, she was so hoping, so hoping, so hoping, and it was a perfect morning. And um, I just remember her landing was just perfect. This was the best first solo landing I have ever seen. Just watching her, and she's an absolute grazer, perfect flare, absolute grazer, and roller, and that was just like yes. I didn't do it, but you know you still feel you still feel that sense of achievement on their behalf. Oh, yeah, awesome. it's a really good feeling. Do you ever do any um, recreational flying outside of work? Not now. A few years ago, I did a little bit in a Piper Cub um, with Bill Henwood uh, down south a bit, uh, and I really enjoyed that. It was really really good fun, and it makes you realise how much you forget to use your feet. Uh, is a jet pilot. <laughs> it's terribly out of balance. It's like, sorry, Bill, sorry, Bill, sorry, Bill, or we're in the circuit. Um, but I did again realise that it, it's you've actually got to earn an awful lot of money to fly recreationally, I think, because to be what I call morally current, in other words, actually feel comfortable and proficient, you've got to fly regularly. Yeah. Uh, and that's expensive, and particularly when the airfield is, you know, sort of an hour and a half drive away. Yeah. Um, so no, I haven't. I haven't pursued it because it's it's my job now. I enjoy I enjoy it as part of my job, uh, but I don't I don't do it recreationally. Right. Yeah. Well, actually, one thing I was yep. going to ask. Um, I've I've heard uh, that you know, particularly sort of around the world, uh, mm. that there's pretty much a, an airline pilot shortage uh, in a lot of places. Does that happen in New Zealand? Is there a shortage of pilots in New Zealand? It's a really interesting question. Um, I sort of answer it in, in two chunks. Um, in terms of, so for jet recruiting for Air New Zealand, um, we're sport for choice. We are so lucky. For example, um, a couple of months ago, like I said, every day I turn up for work, I'm meeting the FO for the first time. Um, so I flew with this guy who was obviously experienced. And he say, say, you know, where were you before in New Zealand? And he said, oh, I was with Cathay. I was, okay, how long were you with Cathay? 18 years. 
nine of those as a skipper. So this guy has undoubtedly taken a significant pay cut uh, to come back home, because he's a Kiwi, and he's sitting in the right-hand seat, and I'm sitting in the left-hand seat. <laughs> so we are really, really privileged that we can attract people to New Zealand from literally all over the world. Uh, at the regional level, um, there's still a lot of hiring going on, uh, and it depends how you define pilot shortage, right? So we still, uh, our official minimum for our regional airlines is 500 hours, but um, we're typically hiring around the 1,000 to 1,500 hour mark. Um, and some interesting statistics I heard the other day, in 2009 there was 400 odd CPLs issued in New Zealand, about 230 of those were issued to Kiwis, because obviously we do a lot of training in New Zealand for people that are going offshore, as of last year. Um, there were 200 odd CPLs issued in total, 160 of which were Kiwis. So the number, of, and that's just fixed thing, um, so the number of licences being issued is definitely dropping uh, and I put a large chunk of that down to the change in the student loan system from 2009 so that you can no longer borrow the full amount of the cost of your training. And there's, that's partly good, partly bad in my opinion. Um, so, I mean, 160 CPLs, fresh CPLs a year uh, is, I would argue, probably plenty as long as, without wanting to sound too biased, those are the right 160 people. Um, and I think uh, one of the problems that made itself apparent when the student loan system uh, was more generous was that the vetting process uh, was not robust and so that there were people able to borrow money to start learning to fly that probably ultimately were not going to be successful in the commercial aviation environment. Um, so it's good that that has, you know, that situation has changed. Um, but the challenge for New Zealand has been for a long time and will continue to be is bridging the gap between getting a qualification and getting the experience that we are looking for uh, at the bottom end to get to actually start that long career. So um, I would anticipate that uh, in our future at some point we may have to change uh, our induction to the airline process because if, if it's, not a, it's not an absolute shortage of qualified pilots but I would argue that we're on the verge of a shortage of experienced pilots. Does that do you understand what I'm differentiating? Yeah, uh, absolutely. I, I totally get that. And also the other thing too, those um, CPLs that have been issued to New Zealanders here, mm -hmm. it doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to stay in New Zealand either, does it? Oh, absolutely. And I mean, probably I'm probably safe to say the majority of those um, CPLs will probably do some flying offshore simply because um, the third level of aviation in New Zealand is really quite small. There's just not jobs for 160 a year uh, to be employed full time. Yeah. 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 Very interesting. Cool. Um, do you have any sort of last thoughts on um, trying to inspire uh, young people, or particularly girls, to get into aviation? Yeah. Well, we need more girls in aviation. Full stop. So at the moment in New Zealand, the jet fleet's got we're five percent female. So that's not very many. Uh, in the regional airlines, um, that's 10 to 15% female, which and that's increased a lot in the last 10 years. But 
we need at least a third of our pilots being women and um, we're actually just starting to think quite strongly about doing some more research into why more girls aren't choosing to fly. I mean I can think of a lot of reasons um, and I think there are probably some um, misperceptions out there about what's involved or what the downsides are so it comes back to what I said before if you think you might be interested in learning to fly find somebody and ask some of the important questions. Um, I encourage girls out there all over the place to, if you're interested, start learning to fly. It's a great profession for a woman. Um, yes, there are challenges if you want to have a family, but I don't care what profession you go into, there's going to be challenges if you want to have a family. And we're actively working to make the work, envir work environment more family friendly. Um, so yeah, it's a great place to be. And a lot of stuff in the media recently about pay equity for women women's roles. I mean, uh, no secret, I'm in the top 1% of income earners in New Zealand. That's male and female. So what percentage that is of female, I don't know, but it's less than 1%. I mean, we are well paid, we earn it, but we're well paid. Um, job security, it's a seniority system. Uh, you can't, if, if you're worried about gender bias, you know, I won't get a promotion because I'm a woman, a seniority system makes that null and void. So, I mean, really, there's an awful lot more going for our profession if you're a woman than there are for a lot of others. That's a really good point. Because, <laughs> <laughs> you know, seniority, you can't you can't discriminate on gender or anything else. Yeah. Okay. Oh, that's brilliant. Mm. Well, thank you very much. Christine. You're welcome. <laughs> that was the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood.